Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name I preach and in whose name we pray. Amen. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, wondering aloud if my two sons would ever get along. They really are like oil and water. Maybe oil and fire is a better analogy, given the way that their every interaction seems to explode into shouting, screaming, and wrestling as one of them tries to pull an old toy out of the other's grip or throw the other one out of their bedroom. They literally cannot be in the same room together for 30 seconds without hostilities erupting. My brother and I were never actually close, my friend mused over the phone. Actually, he continued, that's a bit of an understatement. He went on to share some of the more troubling episodes of his adolescence, scenes from the theater of the absurd. I was looking out of my bedroom window one day, back in high school, while my brother was playing basketball in the driveway, he began. It was a beautiful Saturday morning, the kind of day when everything seems right with the world. I was just sitting by the open window, admiring some birds and a nearby tree. But at one point, I glanced over at my brother to find that he had stopped dribbling the ball and was staring back at me with an intense, unprovoked hatred. Our eyes met, and without looking away, he casually walked over to my car and threw the basketball as hard as he could into the driver's side door. It left a good-sized dent which seemed to satisfy him, and he let the ball roll away as he strolled out of view. We never spoke of it, he added, which I found odd. Apparently it was easier to just let these things go than try to work things out with his brother. There was another time, my friend offered, when I was sitting at my desk doing homework, all of a sudden, without warning, my brother burst into the room and came charging at me with a hockey stick. Hold up now, I replied. Did you do something to set him off? I mean, it sounds like he really hated you for some reason. I still wonder about that, he said, but I really don't know what his problem was or what I ever did to aggravate him. He stormed into the room with his hockey stick and just started wailing on me with it. I managed to, to get a hold of it, and we, we wrestled there for a while as he pinned me to the desk, knocking things over and breaking stuff. It was all very dramatic. But after a while, he just got bored and left. He paused at the door to knock a lamp off the dresser, and then he was gone. Wow, I said into the phone. I didn't know what else to say. None of this gave me any confidence or comfort in regards to my own children. Is this how it was going to turn out? Is this how it was going to be? Would they ever learn to work out their differences? From the moment they were born, the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, were at odds with each other. They wrestled in their poor mother's womb, raced each other into the world. Esau was born first, but we're told that Jacob's infant 
fingers were clutching his brother's heel as if trying to claw his way ahead into the world. They grew to be two very different people. Esau was burly and muscular, a portrait of raw physicality. Jacob was smaller, leaner, but clever, an archetypal trickster character who seemed to enjoy taking advantage of his brother's naivete. We can only imagine the sort of squabbles they got into growing up, but we know that it culminated in Jacob's final treachery, the theft of his older brother's inheritance that set Esau on a murderous rampage. Like they say in those active shooter drills, Jacob could only run, fight, or hide. So Jacob runs, flees the family homestead, and then he hides, laying low for no fewer than 14 years. It's like that old Guns N' Roses song. It's been 14 years of silence, 14 years of pain, 14 years that are gone forever, and I'll never have again. I don't think he intended to stay away that long, but, you know, time has a way of passing. And actually, Jacob accomplishes a great deal in that span of time. He gets married twice, fathers several children, builds a pretty successful business in cattle and livestock. But Jacob, nonetheless, has been avoiding the great unresolved conflict of his life. He's been putting it off, hiding from his brother in a haystack like he did when they were children after pulling another stunt. Jacob finally decides to face his fears and makes amends with Esau. He packs up his family and his entire estate and he makes the journey back home, hoping that his brother will forgive him. But as they draw nearer to the old family farm by the Jabbok River, Jacob has second thoughts. He's afraid. He sends his whole family ahead across the river, but he stays behind for the night, unsure of whether he ought to proceed. And then, as we're told, he wrestled with a man until dawn. It's a bizarre story, bizarrely told, scant on details. We don't know who this man is, although it's implied that he's some kind of divine messenger. It could be some representation of Esau, a manifestation of Jacob's fear and his inner struggle. Or it could be God come to test Jacob's mettle. This isn't the only time this sort of thing happens in the Bible. There's a similar, less known episode in the book of Exodus, when Moses is on his way to confront Pharaoh to demand the release of the Israelite slaves. On the way, the text reads... At a place where they spent the night, the Lord met Moses and tried to kill him. Now these texts come from a very ancient time in which God was understood very differently. Less a being of pure love, God was ambivalent, responsible for both good and evil in the world. So it wasn't so crazy or unimaginable that God might attack you in the middle of the night and try to break your leg. Of course, our understanding of God has changed. I, for one, don't believe that God smites us with disease or misfortune, but there are plenty of people who will burst into our lives with a proverbial hockey stick and attack us when we least expect it. And when they do, we can only run, fight, 
or hide. But maybe, just maybe, sometimes there is another option. Not to struggle against our brother, but to struggle with him. I want to talk a little bit about what's been going on in Portland these last couple of weeks. Actually, I don't really want to talk about it. I'd much rather bury my head in the sand than try to navigate a political minefield. But I think we need to talk about it, and I think we need to talk about it a little more carefully than we have been, because it's important, and because it can help us to better understand Jacob's struggle and our own. Okay, so for two months, protests against police brutality in the wake of George Floyd's execution have persisted in Oregon long after they began to dwindle in other places. Apparently, in Portland, they were beginning to peter out there as well, where thousands once gathered and marched, only a hundred or so folks were continuing to come together every day. But in recent weeks, the U.S. government has deployed federal agents to Portland in an effort to protect federal property from protesters. But rather than quell the protests, the presence of these camouflaged soldiers in their streets only seems to have galvanized them, and their numbers have once again grown into some pretty large crowds. Now, there's nothing wrong with the government protecting federal property from vandals. That's their job. But these agents have been employing some disturbing tactics with a bit of a totalitarian flavor like pulling isolated protesters off the street, tossing them into unmarked vans without reading them their rights, several blocks away from any federal property. They aren't coordinating with local law enforcement, according to the city's mayor, and they're firing rubber bullets and tear gas into relatively peaceful assemblies. Now, it is true that there is a small but very dedicated group of violent protesters who have laid siege to the local courthouse, but I will come back to that in a minute when I try to address the other side of this thing. Now, the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, was tear-gassed himself when he tried to meet with his constituents to listen to their concerns. I don't believe that he was specifically targeted in any way, but I also seriously doubt that he was throwing rocks or Molotov cocktails at the authorities. I've been paying close attention to what's been going on there and trying to understand it from both sides. And I came across two articles that represented those angles pretty well, I thought. The first was from a local resident of Portland who shared her observations, and the other was an interview with one of the federal agents. Now, the writer of the first article reports that the so-called city under siege being described on the news is actually quite placid. The disconnect between the reality of daily life in Portland and its depiction in national media has become something of a joke among those of us who live here, she writes, with residents humorously posting photos from the zoo, parks, and quiet streets alongside overheated dystopian descriptions from the national press. She describes peaceful protests nourished by local food vendors and dancing to music piped in from a PA system. Then she describes what happened after the federal agents showed up. I was near to where the camouflaged officers approached the park, and if there was any verbal warning before they began firing munitions into the crowd, she writes, I did not hear it. 
This echoes the words of a 53-year-old Navy vet, Chris David, who just got his hand broken by the same soldiers. A bunch of federal agents beat me up because I wanted to talk to them about not honoring their oath with the Constitution, he said. Now, the other article I mentioned includes an anonymous interview with one of the guys in camouflage tasked with guarding the local courthouse and other federal property from rioters. I have seen individuals screaming at people in front of liquor stores or Walmart parking lots, but that is one single unhinged individual. Multiply that by a thousand people standing 10 to 20 yards in front of you who also have rocks and other hidden weapons. As the night goes on, he says, the rioters become so hateful, it is surreal. Their voices hoarse, their sentences jumbled, they seem almost catatonic with hate. So clearly, however you look at it, things are at an impasse. And we could argue all day, like preschoolers, about who started it. But the more productive question, I think, is how we resolve it, or other issues like it. Like my two sons, this is not a matter of oil and water, but rather fire and gasoline. So what are folks there to do? Run, fight, or hide? Is there any other choice? I believe that there is. Namely, the path of most resistance. And by resistance, I mean resisting that essentially binary choice between fight or flight. To struggle with someone as opposed to struggling against them. In this particular instance, I think Mayor Wheeler is trying to take that path. After initially digging in his heels and refusing to communicate with the Department of Homeland Security, I don't need to reach them, he said. I want them to leave. He's now trying to broker a formal ceasefire. Much like Jacob, he is trying to put an end to hostilities that have gone on for too long in his city to bring something to the negotiating table. As Jacob brings his herds of cattle to appease his brother's wrath, the mayor hopes to negotiate some kind of peace. To struggle against someone is to try to defeat them, or sometimes even destroy them. But to struggle with someone is to reach an understanding. Now it is true that there are times when people cannot be reasoned with. Sometimes the guy with the hockey stick is determined to cause trouble and you cannot talk him out of it. Now, the soldiers in Portland or whoever they answer to could be one of them. I don't know. But more often than not, I think, it is possible to struggle with someone and overcome our differences. This is true on the world stage, where we call it diplomacy. And it's true in our own homes, because we are, after all, more than each other's neighbor. We are each other's brother and sister. After 14 years of fighting and running and hiding, after a lifetime of struggle against each other, even in their mother's womb, Jacob and Esau are finally ready to struggle with one another. In describing Jacob's wrestling match with the stranger at the river, the medieval Jewish scholar Rashi once wrote, such is the habit of two people who make strong efforts to throw each other down that one embraces the other and attaches himself to him with his arms. 
There's an intimacy in that kind of struggle, a kind of embrace, much like the one that Esau will eventually welcome Jacob with when he finally comes home and they see each other face to face after so many years. When Jacob wrestles with the stranger, he tells him, I will not let you go until you give me a blessing. But when we struggle with someone instead of against them, that intimate embrace tells them, much as God tells us, I will never let you go.